0: Hello everybody, this is Kevin Witham, and welcome to season two of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone-Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one, so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome back to week four of our series, Lessons Learned from Mars Hill. The cost of speaking up is going to be uh, our theme today and what we're going to be talking about. Tina, it is great to be back with you. Um, we're, we're thrilled to be back with our panel after a week's break. Uh, as last podcast, we talked about events in uh, Ukraine, but we're, we're glad to have you. Uh, Dr. Alicia Crumpton back, Ben Brewster, and Kevin Holland.
1: I'm excited about this week's episode as well, because we're not only talking about the cost of speaking up, but also the cost of not speaking up. Some of our listeners may have experienced congregational cultures that silence, marginalize, or even demonize those who speak up. And yet it seems clear to me that without open dialogue, there can never be unity. There will only be conformity.
0: Yeah that that's true in fact if you go back to our rift and repair revisited podcast uh, our listeners might remember Douglas Jacoby saying unity is connection in the midst of disagreement unity almost requires disagreement but but sadly some ministries lack the maturity that it takes uh, and they're they're threatened by diversity or or alternative perspectives so it's, it's important, it seems, for us to remember Jesus who calls us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. And, and even as leaders, we need to be, as James said, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Sometimes charisma or position can become more important than character itself. And when that happens, we can become less like Jesus and more like those who opposed him.
1: Yeah, we've seen so far that these toxic cultures often don't start out that way, but in certain environments, they gravitate toward becoming toxic and controlling. And when that happens, the tendency is to spin the story, create false narratives, and protect the institution instead of protecting the people.
0: Tina, Scott, Scott McKnight and his daughter, Laura Beringer they they have written what has become an enormously popular book called A Church Called Tove. The subtitle is, Forming a Goodness Culture that Resists Abuses of Power and Promotes Healing. And they've just done great work describing these cultures. And not too long ago, Scott did a YouTube interview with Boz Chavitijan, and they discuss in that interview how power cultures tend to control those who would speak up. So we're going to put the link to the full interview in the show notes, but, but let's listen in to a clip from that interview.
2: Ordinary people impute and infer and and assume that a pastor is someone who can be trusted as honest, as good, uh, do, do the right thing, all these things. And so when they begin to have questions, they have to think that it's their fault because it, it can't be the pastor's fault. Mm-hmm. And th- that, that dynamic right there is the dynamic that toxic pastors trade in. Mm-hmm. They know that people will trust them. And, it, and it's, not only, it's not only they know that people will trust them. What I have found is that they also know that dynamic that the person will second guess themselves. Yeah. And they will exploit that so that the person is doing that even more so. And the goal of that, or one of the goals of that, is to keep that person silent. Yes. So, well, you um, you know all about the power, the power culture that develops in in some of these churches. Yeah. And uh, pastors who are toxic, who are narcissistic, will use their power, and they will use fear. And they they create a culture around them where, People realize when they disagree. I just heard a story the other day. Uh, A woman raised a question with a pastor. This is only staff raised a question. And it was a good question because it had to do with the culture of that church that was seemingly neglected by this new pastor. This pastor writes this uh, young woman a letter and says, don't ever disagree with me again in public. Now, that woman is afraid. Mm-hmm. She's afraid probably to talk to other people in the church because they now know they'll get pounced off. So using fear and threatening people and then using affirmation that if you're in the inside circle, then you are especially approved. And I have met countless people, well, count hundreds of people over the years who because they were insiders with Famous pastors, celebrity pastors, that they they really had a raise of their own ego and they thought they were something special. Well, the pastor trades in that too, Boz. He he thinks, well, I've got them now in my circle, I've got them wanting my approval. Now, if I if I suggest I won't approve something, they won't do that. And it creates this entire fear culture. And in that culture, people start doing whatever the pastor wants and and I think you're exactly right. When they begin to think that they're seeing something wrong, they immediately think it's their fault. They think, well, I must, I must not be perceiving this. And then I learned from you, uh, I was working on a project on German pastors after World War II, and I began to map how pastors processed the Holocaust, and they did not take responsibility for anything Hitler did. And you think, really? Really? And they were blaming other countries, the United Kingdom or England, the United States for invading them, uh, the Soviet Union, instead of taking responsibility for not speaking up when they had their opportunities, um, they, they they started blaming and they, they confused uh, the lay people. And the pastors even themselves got confused because of the power mongering. And then these power people, you know, uh, you develop some of the categories that churches use when they are trying to intimidate and silence people. And we developed that, some of what you said and what we learned from, what I learned from the German pastors and then other things into false narratives that churches use all as an attempt to create an alternative narrative one that they want to be told, and to silence their critics.
1: Okay, panel, in your experience, how prevalent is this problem?
3: Well, I'll I'll launch in, you know, I've been in several churches, Through the decades, and I can't remember one where there hasn't, at some time, been a conflict or or some sort of um, disagreement. Who would who you know? Wow, disagreement among people. Um, I think that um, that's part of a culture of uh, in churches where you know we we get along, and and you know, Jesus' big idea. Hey, let's take people that are really different and put them all together and uh, try to get them to love each other. And, you know, uh, it's easier said than done. Obviously, with the Spirit, uh, it's possible. And in many cases, it's been done. And I can say in the churches I've been a part of, generally speaking, there has been a spirit of unity and a spirit of uh, respecting one another. However, there have been seasons in all of them where uh, certain conflicts have arisen. And I would say that um, by nature of the strength of personality of the leader involved, there often has been uh, a situation where there is a cost to speaking up, whether it's proximity to that leader, um, the feeling of support among your peers, you know, your reputation either being, you know, uh, lifted up or being spoken against. So I've seen that. Um, sorry to say I've seen that pretty frequently in my experience.
4: I can't really speak to prevalence because prevalence as a word, I think, sort of uh, shifts my thinking to being able to somehow quantify, like, how pervasive is it. And I really don't have the evidence or the data to support that. But clearly, I mean, gosh, just sitting and thinking, we can anecdotally name a number of cases where things were happening in the church. As the story comes out, we discover that things were happening and people were sort of aware of challenges sort of all along. And and I think that's, that's the crux of our conversation is how does that happen? I mean, how do we see the good and, and somehow set aside the negative that we see happening within the church uh, in ways that, that contribute to toxicity? And then how do we help people sort of deal with the aftermath? That seems to be the question that I'm grappling with today.
0: So, so what are the costs of speaking up? Or, you know, maybe to reverse that, what are the costs of not speaking up in these cultures, just kind of deciding to hold our tongue and maybe bide our time and hope things pass?
5: One cost is losing your standing, your position, um, being ostracized, um, particularly when you have an unhealthy leader model. And as we've seen in listening to this uh, Mars Hill podcast, that um, ministry is very easy to abuse. It's easy to, um, to get sucked in by the illusion of power, which really is not the Jesus model, but... For those who who speak up and see it as Alicia just mentioned that people see things happening underneath the surface that they know something is not right uh, with this picture. But yeah, if the the leadership as a whole is not willing to listen and respond and and that person who speaks up could lose quite a bit. I think one of the the, uh,
3: biggest costs is the circle of friends that we have and I can speak from personal experience. My good friend, John, who was on this call, we were talking actually last, last week, and he was saying that um, several years ago, back in 2012, uh, I had begun an initiative in our church and had begun to speak about certain proclivities <laughs> in the leadership. And John, who was in, a sister, was in a sister church, said, yeah, man, your reputation took quite a beating back then, like uh, a decade ago. And, and so, um, I look back on that and, uh, remember, you know, have, have some wounds from that season, but also I'm, I'm glad, I guess I'd rather look back on that, uh, even with the wounds and the lost relationships and the damaged reputation rather than look back and regret not having said anything. So there is a real cost, you know, advanced career advancement, losing friends, being, you know, gossiped about, or slandered, uh, that is a cost. One of my favorite quotes, I hope I'm saying his name right, Jean-Paul Sartre, I don't know if that's right, but his quote is, every word has consequences, every silence too. And so whether it's Mars Hill, whether it's Willow Creek, whether it's, you name the the situations, um, you know, there's a lot of regret around, hey, we saw this flashing red light of issues, but we didn't say anything. You don't want to lose your position you don't want uh, your friends to look askance at you. I think that's that's a cost.
1: I was just going to say do you all think that there's a difference in the position that you're in the church? So, like loss of standing and things like that, that could be more toward somebody in leadership or someone on staff or is that the same for just a congregation member is the type of cost that someone pays for speaking up or not is it different for those that are is it weightier is it whatever for those that are kind of on the inside as those that might be on the outside?
3: Well I think in leadership it had the, the challenge is you can lose your position your job or your role and if you're in the membership, that cost is probably less, but you have the cost of being viewed as a troublemaker or a disruptor or that kind of thing, and then also the fear of being exposed. And if you're a member and you are you're in a culture where you you know that there's a godly part of looking up to leadership and and trusting and respecting and so forth, and so you you run a risk of perhaps. Um, Feeling like I'm being unspiritual and challenging authority, so that's I think what uh, makes it difficult for people. So there's, so that cost is there, but I think it I think it is different.
0: I, I, I'm going to add something to that. Being in uh, pastoral and preaching ministry myself for for a lot of years, from a membership standpoint, you know, I've always been in a preaching role or and worked with leaders in in churches. Uh, it's it's not uncommon to find in churches that that a member if they question or come with some level of just uh, criticism about a decision or direction that they might be marginalized or even told well if you don't like it leave you can just go elsewhere and you know you can lose your church family in your home church uh, is that now now there you know there's a time maybe when 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 we're following godly shepherds and leaders, we, we want to defer maybe to a direction that's been prayed about and thought about and carefully implemented. And, and you know, maybe there's a time when we do say, I, I don't know if this is the church family for me anymore, but what they're doing is not necessarily evil, but um, there's also a way it, where shepherds and pastors need to care about the flock and be willing to hear and willing to listen. And, willing to affirm and be be open to letting the body of Christ be the body of Christ and and speak up and speak out and differ and disagree without being told well if you don't like it just leave that that's that's a horrible way of shepherding people
4: well it's a denial of this the the DNA that's been infused in the church by God you know if you look at Ephesians 4 um I, I really do believe there's a reason why <clears throat> the attributes of apostle, prophet, evangel, shepherd, teacher, that creates a holism. And too much bias one way or the other can lead to to parts of the body not being tended to in ways that are godlike. Um I mean, I just I feel I'm, I'm. You guys know I'm not a Bible scholar, but when I read that passage, I see so clearly that it takes all of those aspects of who God is within the church to create wholeness, and we can get unbalanced in that if if we're only, you know, the the idea that we would say somebody in the church either like it or lump it, <laughs> take it or leave it. It just seems a little preposterous to me in some respects. I mean, I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna here, but where is the, the, the love of God and that sort of assertion and that the way that we're interacting with, where, where's the shepherd showing up in that quality of the church when we take that kind of stance? Yeah,
0: yeah. there, there needs to be a way, it seems for leaders, when they're approached And, and even when a member comes with, with concern, but you know, the, the, the leadership as a whole has thought that through and prayed about it and differed with that concern to say, well, we love you. We hear you. Um, we want you to be a part of this. We hope you can at least, uh, defer to our judgment on this. We're still family instead of, well, well, there's other places you can go, um, it just seems there's, there's more affirming and loving ways to address that. And, you know, of course, there are sometimes people in the body who decide they're just going to be adversarial. And maybe that takes a little bit of a different approach, but it, it always needs to be done in love.
4: It seems, too, that when we're thinking about it from a leadership, we're, we're talking about a complexity of leadership. There are times when leaders say, this is the direction that we need to go. But there's a different, there's a qualitative difference between power over and power with and among and discerning as the body of Christ, what that looks like as we collectively move forward. And and maybe, maybe part of the challenge in, in leadership here is the individual versus the collective. So power over versus power among is a marked difference. In how we view leadership versus um, the collective, honoring the leaders among us, I think that that's that's a uh, something that we see in some of these cases is that the leader gets elevated to the point where it's power over versus power among and within, and that that's a sticky wicket in terms of how people are treated. So then the like it or leave becomes a power over kind of assertion in that context when we've lost this sort of sense of the collective and the, how God uses these varying types of voices in this APES model to minister to and within the congregation and to believers, fellow believers.
5: Mm. Kevin with you you, something you said triggered a thought in my mind about how sometimes we operate within systems that, do not lend themselves to conflict or resolution. So like the example you pointed out, we, we tell someone who's disgruntled, well, if you don't like it, you can go somewhere else. But on the flip side of this, sometimes congregations will, help pre- will just say, well, we're just going to get rid of the preacher. And both of those actions don't really help anybody in the long run. And we deal with, we carry baggage into more relationships and more damage is done because there wasn't any type of sit down. Let's try to work through this in the spirit of Christ.
0: Mm-hmm. Well well said, Ben. Sometimes the power plays can be by by folks who are just members of that particular body wielding some kind of influence. It may not be the preacher himself, and he may be the recipient of toxic culture and toxic power plays. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the trauma that results from these types of leadership cultures. How, how have we uh, seen people traumatized and affected by this?
3: Well, I can, I can speak to that. I was just in a conference in Sacramento and I was talking to a pastor who's in Seattle. And I just happened to ask him, Ask him. he's just been there a couple of years, but he knows some of the pastors and some of the congregants of what was the Mars Hill church and lots of different churches. And I was just asking him how he experienced it, how he experiences them. And he said that there's, there's definitely a sadness and there's definitely among some, not all, but among some, this sense of just a uh, frozen in time spirit where there is trauma and because it was never acknowledged, you know, uh, real time, it still lingers. And so that definitely is the case. I've seen that in this situation and I've also seen it in um, other congregations of which I'm aware. And, you know, it does linger. So what I would say is that a trauma that happened maybe a decade ago still presents, you know, 10 years later in different ways. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be debilitating, but it still presents, you know, people. You have actually staff, I know one staff member who was clinically diagnosed with PTSD from a, an authoritative leader in the past and, you know, who, uh, there was some trauma there. There was some spiritual abuse and, and trauma. So the, the effects linger.
4: I'm reading this book called the body keeps the score brain, mind and body in the healing of trauma. And the author, and I can't pronounce the name Bessel van, van der Kolk, I think is, is, his thesis says that um, the body internalizes trauma, whether we can articulate it or not. And that sometimes these traumas that we experience collectively um, show up in forms of uh, asthma, illnesses, aches, pains, mental health issues that that I think that... Um, some of the people that I've spoken with that have been in churches that were toxic, the physicality of trauma is is a very real thing um, that doesn't leave after you leave the situation. That that what it's teaching me, and then I'm not a psychologist or a or a, a doctor of, of that sort, is that that we need to have a period of restoration and healing following these types of contexts and these types of situations because of the way the body needs to release the trauma and, and identify it as a real palpable thing within the physical body. I wonder if the, um, the, the members of the church talked about in Revelations 2 where the author says to them, "You've lost your first love." I wonder if if we had, I wish we could kind of parachute into their context and and see did they what kind of traumas were they experiencing within the body? Um, once they recognized that they were adrift, Love God, but something had happened in that church that caused. Um, them to be labeled as losing their first love.
0: Mm -hmm. What should our our words be perhaps to people who've been traumatized um, and it's impacted their faith? Maybe they've so tied that church experience to their experience with God or their experience of who Jesus is. What kind of words would we offer to people like that to help them heal and get their eyes fixed more on Jesus than the frailties of some Christian leaders and, and maybe even the abuses of some church leaders. I think
3: I greatly,
5: that greatly. Oh, you go, you go ahead, Kevin. Go. I defer I, to I would you. Great, you have more books. Oh, no, no. <laughs> uh, you know, something that Alicia said earlier about wholeness, um, all of this is connected, our our feelings and our physical health and, the trauma that we carry. Uh, one thing I would greatly encourage people is to seek out the help of a, a licensed Christian uh, therapist, a mental health expert, um, to help process the trauma that's going on. Because um, a lot of times we, we sabotage new relationships because we never dealt with the baggage from the old relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think we see a pattern in churches. I mean, we can all probably think of churches that seems like every three years they're looking for a preacher. Well, what's going on there? What has never been dealt with? What's never been healed? Or we hear about an abusive leader um, and there was nothing done there. And so he, he just went to a different congregation and continued those abusive practices. So I, I really think that um, enlisting professional help of Christian mental health experts and therapists is so crucial. Mm
4: hmm. I was reading today preparatory to this this conversation from Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship and and, uh, I believe that in returning to our knowledge of who God is that that can be a healing moment for us in the way that we can set aside um, what we've learned, what we've experienced to look at it a new way. And this passage out of Bonhoeffer's book really just washed over me. It was so powerful. And and I'm just going to read the excerpt. He said this, said, You are the salt. Jesus does not say you must be the salt. It is not for the disciples to decide whether they will be the salt of the earth, for they are. So whether they like it or not, they've been made salt, (laughs) because they have received God. I'm paraphrasing there. The call of Christ makes those who respond to it the salt of the earth in their total existence. And then he goes on to say, the call of Jesus makes the disciple community not only the salt, but also the light. Their activity is visible. You are the light. Once again, it is not you are to be the light. You, you are already the light because Christ has called you. And I don't know that for me, sometimes when I look at stuff and I hear people saying something like, that's just crazy. And you're trying to grapple with the experience of it just to return to the basics. Regardless of that, I can set that aside and say, I am the light. I am the salt. God has transformed me via, um, the resurrection and my acceptance of Him, and I—I I would just offer that as as a blessing, <laughs> because regardless of our material circumstance and what other people are saying, these things are true. God has told us they are true, and I find I find um, respite in that in His words.
1: You know, the cost of not speaking up, you know, what words would we give? I think I'm sorry goes a long way. And it seems to me that when the church deals with people who've been hurt and whether they're in ministry or they're in membership, we try to offer like Bible verses. We try to even send someone to Christian counseling when really leaders in the church should say they're sorry. And, and that we're sorry that happened to someone and acknowledge that that we're imperfect, but also that there was abuse. I think that when there's, with the Mars Hill situation, there wasn't closure for them in the fact of like really acknowledging and letting people process. So they go off with their wounds and if they go into another church, nobody maybe nobody says they're sorry. I mean, even if we haven't done the wrong to someone, we can empathize with them in a way that says, yeah, that was not right. And and then try to be a healthier community for them. But, you know, in the cost of not speaking up by people who've either offended or whatever that just are not willing to own and take responsibility that they're sorry is something I think that really hurts the church.
3: I couldn't agree more.
4: Well, and sometimes the actions leading up to it diminishes the apology when it does come. I mean, uh, and, and I'll just s- use some anecdotal, but I know women who have been abused within the church, who the first response of the church was to cover up, dismiss or devalue the woman, or to to sort of put her lived experiences in a box in a way that made her feel as though her lived experiences were something to be controlled and managed. And then they see the, the male person, the abuser uh, not being reconciled with and even celebrated in some cases like, oh, wow, okay, you said you're sorry. Well, it, it just, it doesn't, there's a disconnect. <laughs> I mean, it's uh It's hard to take the apology seriously for all the things that led yep. up to it that denied the personhood of the of the, the victim. And So true. I don't know what else to say there. It's just I shake my head in disbelief at how often these, this is the story of women who have come forward and, and it was like jumping through hoops to get anybody to listen and and not dismiss them and their story and their personhood. And meanwhile, justifying the acts of the person and covering up and hiding.
3: So good. You guys have got me going. Um, I do want to ask a question. Is there a book that Alicia has not read? That's that's something I want to talk about on another episode. <laughs> uh, it, it, Many. Thank you. <laughs> uh, this is so good. And um, I appreciate all that uh, everyone has shared. In particular, Tina, there was one word that uh, you mentioned a few times, and that was the word acknowledge. And in my experience, that, that one word, uh, is one, is, is something that many times is overlooked, but I find there's a lot of power in that word. And if, if there will be a pause to look someone in the eye, to not gaslight or dismiss or minimize, but just step into their lived experience and acknowledge you are correct, that was wrong. I should have, or someone should have said something or done something different, I am so sorry and actually feel it. I I think it's incumbent upon all of us, members or leaders, to be that for each other. That, you know, it's love in action. It's loving your neighbor as as yourself. It's one-on-one Christianity. But I agree to John's comment. John Teal said, oftentimes toxic leaders double down rather than apologize. We've seen that happen way too many times, uh, even recently. So lessons learned. So what's being modeled in society is the exact opposite. Never admit, you know, a weak, a weak person admits they did something wrong. Never admit that you did wrong. Gaslight whoever criticizes you, you know, coming from a church called Tove, those concepts. And so they're headwinds, I think, uh, in the, that we need to deal, that we need to be aware of. Because charismatic leaders in the church see outside of the church that being modeled and being effective and, and not really looking at Jesus, you know, uh, rebuke of that. Hey, no, not, not so among us, not so among you. The Gentiles and those rulers do X, you should do Y instead. So I would just, I can't emphasize enough how important acknowledgement is. Even in a current situation, I am uh, helping work with and consult in. It's like pulling teeth just to get any acknowledgement. And it's, it's, you just wonder where's the heart of, of empathy of, of a true shepherd to be so caught up in this person is accusing me of missing something rather than this person is, they're heartbroken and, and stepping into their world. And I do think this as well. I think in Christian communities, Often, you can, you can, um, leaders can want to jump over, as, as someone shared earlier, the acknowledgement part. Okay, well, let, let's, uh, hey, that was then, this is now, let's move forward. There's much for you to do. Uh, the harvest is plentiful, uh, you know, people, you know, that, that kind of thing, rather than wanting to stop and pause there. And so uh, we're reading the book, as I shared a couple of episodes ago, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Cesaro, Pete Cesaro. One of the chapters is going back so you can go forward. And it's, as, it's not as though we're trying, you know, some, some leaders are afraid, well, you're just making people perpetual victims, which is another form of, of, of uh, dismissal. And God's like, no, you're not making them perpetual victims. You're acknowledging the trauma that happened so that you, you provide a season of acknowledgement and humility and repentance so that God can heal them in this season so that they can move forward in the next season rather than reliving a, a season of spiritual immaturity because those wounds never healed and so the idea that you're a product of your past but that doesn't mean you're a prisoner of your past there's a difference there uh, but but if we don't acknowledge that our past has affected us then we are doing a disservice to those we're trying to lead, and we we truncate the, the healing we, we we stop it we don't facilitate it. And and people, you know, in physical, we know someone has a physical injury. There has to be a time of healing. No, don't get out on the treadmill. Don't, no, don't go run a lap. No, sit down and put ice and and let it heal. Then begin your rehab. So a lot of lessons there.
0: Well, panel, let, let's uh, let's shift gears here just a bit and ask uh, ask you to, to maybe address this question of how we've seen these dynamics play out in our Stone-Campbell heritage in, in the various streams, in our own tribes and in our own congregations.
5: I think we've seen a lot of wounded congregations. Um, I'm a preacher's kid, and I also am a preacher, so, you know, we we inflict harm on future generations. You know, being a, a, a kid of a if you're if your parent is in a leadership role like that and there's some sort of conflict, you notice the people that were so loving and kind to you are are they changed. They're no longer loving and kind. And and you know, we all process hurt differently and we deal with hurt differently, but I think in our churches um, we haven't done the things, whether it's acknowledgement apologizing, uh, whether it's bringing in outside help to help people work through issues uh, in the spirit of wholeness and, and becoming more what Christ wants us to be. Um, but I, I think that our churches are a product. You look, we started out as a unity movement and how many different divisions are within what's called the restoration movement today. Uh, we've not done very good at
0: this. Yeah, we we've we've kind of seen it I think, you know, Ben and I can both speak from the, the churches of Christ side of our movement, the acapella churches in particular. Um, we see it at the local level, as you've just described, Ben, you know, our history, and you could address this one better than I as well, has often been the history of prominent leaders that you line up with, you know, um, you take Brother, so and so, or or this brother's position on this particular issue, and well, if you don't line up, you know your fellowship circle might be uh, might shrink, <laughs> and uh, your acceptance on certain lectureships, a lot of guilt by association. You know that can be a very toxic form of leadership, and and a, a way of shutting out differences and discussion and dialogue and not letting certain conversations come to the, uh, the forefront. So what it, well, it can happen at uh, a brotherhood level to use that term, as well as in the local, local church, there are all sorts of ways. We've seen it.
5: I've seen it. Yeah, definitely. Kevin, we, we lose a lot. Um, like you, you just mentioned, um, we, we divide into camps and if, if you, you know, you know, Kevin, uh, we could we could say say a prominent preacher's name, and you'll have listeners on this podcast say, oh, I love that person. That's great. But then other people will say, well, how in the world could they even mention that person's name?
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely.
1: Do you want to name one and let's see?
0: <laughs> I'll let Kevin do that. <laughs> we'll let people put
1: on the Facebook page for Common Grounds Unity yes. if they love or don't love the person you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, Next, next.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You guys, how do we balance the tension between leadership and collaboration? How do we balance the vision of the leader with the voice of the people?
3: Wow. That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Don't know that I've got the answer. I will say it's interesting we're bringing this this discussion up and working with a particular group. That's uh, the spirit among many of the the pastors, the evangelists in this particular church and team. Is that's what you know they're they're asking for is collaboration, and so balancing it first, I think, even defining what the terms mean, because we many many of us can come from a culture where there's more authoritarian, more top down, more unilateral, less collaborative. So even defining what both terms mean. And and one of the things I've seen, Tina, is that often uh, leaders, we can feel the right, we can feel like it's our right to define the terms the, through our lens. And then those are the objective truths of them, right? So what I believe collaboration is, means that's what it is for everybody on earth and for those <laughs> on my, the rest of on my team. So, I think in balancing both, I would just say uh, there's a great Je- Jeannie Shaw is a great women's ministry leader, and she was talking about gender, uh, the issue of gender in the church and leadership roles among women, and and and, and uh, she's a pioneer in our fellowship of churches regarding that. And she said something she in it's so simple, but you've got to look at at uh, church through other people's lenses. So look through multiple lenses and. If, if we could make that just sort of required behavior among leaders, regardless of my point of view, I need to spend time and dwell in three different perspectives, three different lenses through which this is seen different than mine. And if I can acknowledge the validity, the, the benefits in those, even if I don't feel moved in that direction, that can help get to, okay, so what's a, what's a third way? What's a, what's a happy medium? What's something we can all live with, but we can't get there if I don't acknowledge that there's any merit in someone else's point of view, or even, I don't even know how to collaborate. That's some many, you know, there wasn't, among some of these leaders, there wasn't any training in collaboration, right? We're, we talk about training in, in gender sensitivity and race sensitivity. What about collaborative leadership? Mo- many haven't ever, had, that it wasn't modeled by the previous generation. So uh, great question. And I'm sure that wasn't a, <laughs> the best answer, but I, I love the topic. And I think it's, I think it particularly with this current time and this next generation, they are at least the ones with whom I relate are not interested in following a, you know a dictator, so one way or another, we, we've got to figure this out.
4: I'm wondering if, um, if we need a, a restoration or maybe a recreation of a biblical theology of hospitality and a return to understanding who the host is at the foot of the cross and who the guests are at the table Mm -hmm. and what that looks like and how, you know, God was so wise in in using communion, the bread and the wine, as as eat of it. We all need to eat of it. I mean, it, it sounds so simplistic to say that, but that does orient us collectively, humanly, to the cross. Uh, We all need to eat. Uh, We all need to drink of it. And and that, when we're thinking about hospitality, one of the things that um, I did a study a few years ago on this topic, and this, this whole idea of communion came so into focus to me because it's all about understanding the relationship of the host and the guest and the norms that each share in the relationship. And gosh, sometimes I think our 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 hyper focus on leadership has us much more enamored with leadership than, you know, people are thinking they're the host and we're all guests at the table. And so That's what I'm thinking about today is how do we recover that sense of our first love of the cross and of who Jesus is and how we collectively stand before the cross as people in need of a savior. Mm. Mm.
3: Acts 15, I was just, when you were sharing that, I was just thinking of the spirit of the Jerusalem council. And it just brought to mind Acts 15, 15:22 where it says then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and of course Acts 6 with the with the apostles choosing the seven to serve uh, the widows there are models there of how to do it it doesn't mean that i don't or or someone is called to not step into their God-given role of leadership, but effective leadership—the most effective leadership—is sort of like parenting. The idea of parenting for the relationship first, rather than parenting for behavior, and not not saying that the leaders are the parents and the, and the members are the kids. Not saying that at all, but just saying, what is the goal of my leadership? Is it is it to build up those I'm leading in getting to a said destination? Or is it, I want to get to the destination and it doesn't matter what cost, you know, how I get there. And ultimately to get to a destination, you're going to get there and accomplish what God wants you to so much better if you bring other people along, even though it's slower in the beginning. And I think that that's the question we want to, you know, none of us want to wait for anything. And, and you know, uh, I think. The idea is not just bearing fruit, but it's wanting to bear fruit that'll last. So I just love that model in Acts fifteen where you got these God anointed apostles having the wisdom to to work with the whole the church, whatever that looked like, and, and making a collaborative church changing decision and modeling, you know, what should happen in the years to come. So
4: I feel good. I feel compelled. I I just have to do this. I want to introduce this quote by Elizabeth Gearhart. Dr. Gearhart is a faculty at Northeastern Seminary, and she wrote a book that rocked my world a few years ago. For one thing, I I love Bonhoeffer and she writes in a Bonhoeffer-esque kind of style. But she wrote a book on the cross and gender aside, a theological response to global violence against women and girls. And this is a direct quote from her work that just resonates with me, what you just said, Kevin. She says this, The cross is the living, breathing proclamation of Christ that demands and shapes the church's ethical response. The reality of Christian ethics is formed by the promise of Christ given to us through the crucified and risen one. It is Christ who encounters us through the incarnation, offers the gift of salvation, and ministers through the church and the world to resist evil and promote life and justice. The theological shift from a self-focused super-spiritualism to a Christ-centered incarnational theology of the cross is certainly freeing when facing the task of working to end injustice in the world. It is God's ongoing work of creation that we enter into when we enter into, this is the key part, relationship with others and work for justice.
3: That is excellent.
0: I'll add add something to this discussion as well. Um, we've not always done this well in all the churches I've been a part of, but when we have gotten this piece right, it has bore good fruit. of Of you, you said something, Kevin. You know, it's it, it's harder. Collaboration is harder. There, there's a messiness to it. You're bringing people together. You're hearing different feedback. And sometimes the easy solution to things is to be dictatorial. Here's what we're going to do. Get on board. Um, and, and yet, you know, I think of Acts 6. I think of the problem of the Hellenistic Jews being, their their widows being ignored in the distribution of food. And so, you know, what did these apostles do? They They bring the whole group of disciples together. And they basically lay out the problem. And they say, you know, you select um from among yourselves men full of the holy spirit and and wise men among you and then they they end up selecting these and then it sounds good to the whole church so there was this community discernment community prayer about this community uh conversation that went on and you know it would have been so much easier for those leaders to just be a self-perpetuating board here we picked the people here's who we're putting in front of you get on board. And and in churches where, you know, I've seen this done well and where we've collaborated better, you know, I I remember when we were forming Vision in a congregation I was with, it was a large congregation, you know, over over a thousand people week to week. And we we would bring together what we called uh, town hall meetings and put round tables out. And we'd kind of put out where we as a leadership saw things going over the next five years, some goals, some vision, and invited the church into the conversation. And conversations were had at tables, and people threw questions in. And um, we came out of that, I think, at that particular time with a far healthier feel that the church was a part of that process rather than just somebody descending from Sinai with a vision saying, here it is, get behind it. And maybe there's a room for that occasionally where somebody just has such a powerful vision that it comes more that way. But uh, this collaborative piece, I, I think it makes those with gifts of leadership and administration better and more discerning and more humble. Because, boy, in our churches, there's a lot of great folks out there with a love for God and a love for the word and wisdom that that can Uh, convey a lot to a smaller group that's trying to lead a flock and so it's messier it takes more time but in the long run I think it just bears so much such better fruit
1: and then the stories that we tell are like God kind of stories on how when we put those things in practice like that's a beautiful story
0: amen let's uh, let's shift gears we're we're probably getting to the point where we want to move a little bit in a, in a direction of just looking to Jesus on this um, what what does Jesus teach or model about speaking truth to power and you know what does he say about leadership or shepherding that would help to better you know align our church leaderships with his way of doing things rather than maybe a, you know, more of a business model? What are some, what are some things you'd offer our listeners, uh, panel?
5: One of the things that strikes me about Jesus is the account in John chapter 13, where he is dining with his disciples and he gets up from the table and he takes a towel and a bowl of water and he begins to wash their feet, which is, amazing statement on leadership, that in the church, in the economy of the kingdom of heaven, leaders are servants. And it's not about power. It's about humility and emptying yourself and serving others. But the the, the one aspect of, of that account in John 13 that's amazing to me, you know, Jesus knew completely who he was, what his mission was, and he didn't skip Judas when he washed feet. He washed the feet of Judas. And to me, that's just when I think about conflicts in the church. God forbid that we ever divide or move on from each other until we've washed each other's feet. Mm. Mm. Wow.
3: We've done a lot of moving on from each other, haven't we? It's just so much easier when that, that level of heartbreak among when your friends or those you have walked side, you shoulder to shoulder with. You know, you begin to disagree on some issues, and isn't it true in, in right now, real time, 2022, gender issue, uh, political politics, race? There's there's so many potential dividing points, and even even talking with people, they're choosing that way of uh, you know, it's easier just to hey, I don't want to arm wrestle with you, I don't want to argue with you rather than and also too like you said man i'm I'm not really looking to wash your feet either you know which is an indictment i thought about john 21 where jesus reinstates peter and you know asks him one one the predicate what's the reason for all of this is love for jesus peter do this out of your love for me but you know the admonitions were to feed Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. So I would say, looking at Jesus, saying, I want you to feed people. I mean, I I want you to lead them, but I want you to lead them by feeding them and caring for them. Rather than, you know, I want to move them. You know, I want to get these sheep two miles north to this next pen. Uh, No, I want you to feed them and care for them as you lead them. So." For some, I just think that resonates in, in terms of, am I more interested in enforcing my view or fulfilling my leadership vision, or am I more interested in feeding and caring for these people out of love for Jesus and trusting that the Spirit in all of us and me modeling and doing my best to try to be like Jesus, knowing I fall woefully short and God's going to move the church where it needs to go.
0: Some of you are listening to this and a lot of this has been directed toward people in leadership or people that are healing from trauma. What would you say panel, what what would be some good counsel? Uh what what might Jesus speak into our hearts and minds if we're sitting in a church where we feel like there's a toxic environment and things that um things that we should either speak up about or maybe we're on the edge of leaving and yet it's been our church family or home. What encouragement and counsel would you give to people who might be in those situations presently? I think
3: about Ephesians four and Paul's admonition, you know, be completely humble and then the idea of making every effort. And that's easy to say when, when you, feel like I can't have this conversation again. I can't bring this up again. I know that some of us who've been around for a while, we can, you know, he just get exhausted, that, um, you know, compassion fatigue, where I feel like I've said this for the umpteenth time. But have I, you know, rather than, hey, I'm going to leave, in my heart and conscience, have I made every effort Keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. Now, maybe I end up the spirit either keeps me here and changes things, or leads me somewhere else. But I can leave, knowing that I made every effort, and I'm open to hearing from others if I've made every effort. Versus me deciding, yeah, I made every effort. I'm I'm out. Uh, It's better to to let others be the help help you come to that, and and obviously the spirit in you come to that conclusion. So. That's what I would say. Also, I would encourage people out there that this is on the radar of more churches and more church leaders now than I think previous seasons or generations, even though we have so far to go. It's more on the radar now. I try to take comfort in that. And some of these issues are much more on the radar now than they were five years ago, ten years ago. And there is movement, although it can painstakingly slow and you know in in certain areas so take heart that there is movement uh, and God is working and more people are paying attention now and listening than in previous seasons
4: I mean for some who are listening you know um I love this. Sorry, guys. I, you know I'm a nerd. I always have a quote. Something comes to mind that helps me to understand <laughs> what was just said. And Vaclav Havel, in his famous essay, The Power of the Powerless, said, "A dissidence, or A dissident is simply a person who is doing what they feel they must, and consequently who find themselves in open conflict with the regime. This conflict has not come about through any conscious intention on their part, but simply through the inner logic of their thinking, behavior, or work. I think that for the people who speak up, who feel called to speak up, yes, it is difficult. You get tired. (laughs) You get compassion fatigue. But take heart the courage that you have been given and the call that you have been given to speak and to use your voice in that way, it is a calling and God is with you. Mm -hmm. God is with you because he has called you and formed you in such a way to speak and to use your voice in that way. I would argue that on Harvard Yard. In the most difficult conversations, God is with you. Find peace in that.
0: That seems like a good place for us to kind of wrap this discussion up. Um, What a good conversation, panel. Can't tell you how much Tina and I appreciate your joining us uh, here over these weeks. Um, Before we close out, Tina, can you give a little insight into where we're headed next podcast? And why don't you close our podcast out?
1: I'm excited for next week's episode titled Gold, Silver, Precious Stones, Wood, Hay, or Straw. We're taking the title from 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul exhorts them to build carefully, recognizing the difference between wise and foolish builders. Until next time, we encourage you to get with another disciple of Jesus outside your family of churches over a meal or beverage, because unity starts with a cup of coffee.
0: Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.